If you open your Bible to John chapter 15, John 15, Lord helping us, we're going to look at the first eight verses. This is the final of seven I am sayings of Jesus found in the book of John. So let's read these verses together. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the blessing of this day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of these verses that we've read. Lord, I pray you would give us a right and true understanding of them. Lord, we desire to bear fruit unto your glory. We desire to live in such a way that honors and glorifies you, our Savior, our Redeemer. So we ask, Lord, for your help both in preaching and in hearing. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if things happened at your house this week the way they did at mine or not. And I'm referring to how quickly the grass greened up after it rained just a little bit. If you'd have walked across my yard last week, just a few days ago, the grass was dry, it was crunchy, and it gave every appearance of being dead. But... Let it rain just a bit, and what happened? That dead grass that looked dead got green seemingly overnight. That's the way that things work in nature. Spiritually speaking, things are not that different. My hope and desire in beginning these sermons on the I am statements of Jesus was to look at these sayings of his and have them newly and freshly nourish our faith and our spiritual life so that if we had been dry and crusty, that in looking at these sayings of Jesus afresh, that he would have used them to water us spiritually. And so far we've considered Jesus saying that he is the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, 
that he is the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. And today we're considering Jesus saying in John 15, both in verse one and in verse five, I am the true vine. There is no greater need that you have. There is no greater need that I have than to know Jesus as he is in truth, as he has revealed himself to be, as the scriptures present him to us. That's the Jesus we need to know. There is nothing greater that you can teach your children. Of course, we want to teach them to read and write, but above all, we want to teach them about Jesus. Fathers, you are particularly charged by the scriptures to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As you study the Lord Jesus Christ, be careful. And what I mean by that is not all books are created equal. As you study Jesus, you need to begin and end with the scriptures. And compare everything else that you read concerning Christ and his gospel with the scriptures to make sure these things are so. Reject that which is the product of worldly thinking concerning Jesus. Reject that which seeks to make Jesus hip rather than holy. And there is so much of that in our day. Reject that which seeks to make Jesus likable by all rather than as he is in truth, the Lord of all. Reject that which would make Jesus less demanding than he really is. Let me remind you, it was to the rich young man that Jesus said when he looked at him and he loved him, he said to him, you lack this one thing. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Do you remember the response? The scripture says he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We don't know the final outcome of that young man, but we know his initial response to what Jesus told him. And it's the response of so many. Having a clear representation of the gospel. Think of this young man having Jesus standing before him. He didn't have a a fallible preacher standing before him who was muttering stuttered words. He had Jesus the Christ, the Son of God before him, hearing the truth from the truth. Remember, Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. So the truth of God was speaking truth to this young rich man, and yet he still went away sorrowful. How greatly we need the help of God to hear from him. How greatly we need the Lord to open our ears so that we can hear from him. If that's not an illustration of that need, and I I don't know of a greater illustration than this rich young man turning away in sorrow, not having heard in truth and with faith the words of Jesus. This morning as we look at John 15, 1 through 8, we've already read the verses. We've prayed and asked for the Lord's help 
what we've read seems on the surface to be very straightforward and clear, and I think it really is. But these are muddy waters. These waters have various interpretations. These waters have various doctrines that are swimming around in them. And I've prayed this week and asked just that the Lord would help me be clear for myself as I consider these verses so that I can present some type of clarity to you as well. And so before we get too involved in these verses, I want to list for you five principles that I think we must approach these verses with. And I'm going to take a little bit of time with this because I think it's vital that we understand these things. And in these five principles, I'm not doing anything other than just letting the scriptures speak for themselves here and then as we compare other scriptures with them. So the first of the five principles that are going to govern what I say to you from this passage this morning is this. I think this is fairly simple. There is a direct correlation between the amount of fruit produced in the Christian life and the Christian's closeness to Christ. We're centering here on the word abide or remain in me. And again, the principle is this. There is a direct correlation. If you were graphing this, the the, the bars of the graph would move together. The direct correlation between the amount of fruit produced unto the glory of God in the Christian life and the Christian's closeness to Christ. Let me say that even more simply if I can. Your communion with Christ, your fellowship with Christ, to whatever degree that that is to be found, that is the amount of fruitfulness that is going to also be found in your life. If you are remaining and abiding in very close communion with Christ, then your fruit is going to be much. R.C. Sproul said this, He says, the degree of your fruitfulness as a Christian will be directly proportionate to how close you stay to Christ, how much you feed on his word, and and how intimate your relationship is to him. So how do you remain close to Christ? Is that an activity just of faith and of the heart? Yes, but, it's one of those yes, but answers. It's a matter of faith and an issue of the heart, but our faith is strengthened and our heart is kept warm to Christ and necessarily kept from waxing cold or growing cold as we are feeding upon the Word of God, as we are following Him in prayer. So your closeness to Christ is going to affect how fruitful you are. Now let me ask you a very simple question. Do you want to be fruitful in the Christian life? I don't suppose it's a natural desire of any Christian to say, nope, don't care to produce any fruit at all. Because you see that what's at stake is, is God being glorified in your life? Jesus says, we're going to look at this verse more closely. He says, if you produce much fruit, my father is greatly glorified. 
That should be the desire of all of us as Christians, to greatly honor and bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Before we move on from this, I want to point out two things. One we're going to talk about this morning, the other we're not except for right here, so pay attention. The first eight verses speak of being in union with Jesus. Union by faith and by the Spirit of God. When we come to faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. All of His righteousness is given to us. That never, ever changes. That is the aspect of our sanctification that is immediate, eternal, and unchanging. The second part of these verses, beginning in verse 9 and going down through verse 17, speak of not union, but communion. Let me point this out to you. The first eight verses twice over say, abide in me. But in the ninth verse, Jesus says, abide in my love. To abide in Christ means to be united by faith to Jesus. To abide in his love, that's the degree of our fellowship or communion with him. This is the part that waxes and wanes. This is the part that is hot and cold. This is the part that is mountaintop and valley experience. Not the first part. Union with Christ is fixed. Communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ, goes up and down. So this is the aspect that we're primarily dealing with this morning. How closely are we remaining or abiding in fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? So let me give you the second principle to govern our study. There are true and false professors in the visible church. Not only does this passage teach that, but think of the the parables and the illustrations that Jesus uses. He speaks about tares among the wheat. He speaks about wolves amongst the sheep. This seems to be the teaching of the second verse, but also think on these words of Jesus as he is concluding and summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, And notice those words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, if it's not everyone who says to you, then who is it? He goes on and he says, It is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So here we find not only a profession of Jesus, but also action. We find not just a word that says, I believe. We find action that is the evidence of it. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not taught others? Have we not even cast out demons and done many wonders in your name? What would Jesus say to them? This is Matthew 7, verse 23, and Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Notice the emphasis Jesus places here. He says, you who practice and the ones that are going to enter the kingdom are the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. There is one very particular point that we can make here. The scriptures very clearly and plainly says in another place, this is the will of my Father that you believe on him whom he has sent. So the first two principles, number one, there's a direct correlation between closeness to Christ and fruit produced. Number two, there are true and false professors in the visible church. Tares amongst wheat, wolves amongst sheep. Number three, the third principle to govern is that fruit bearing is the evidence of abiding in Christ. Fruit-bearing is the evidence of abiding in Christ. And we might also add to that fruit-bearing in various degrees is the degree to which the Father is glorified in us. Now, let's try to define fruit. There's a lot of talk about fruit in this passage. There's a lot of talk by Jesus about fruit. You shall know them by their Fruits. There's the fruit of the Spirit that we looked at in Galatians chapter 5. Let's try to give some definition to fruit. How should we think about this word? What is the fruit that brings glory to God? Well, if you're already thinking about the fruit of the Spirit that's contained in Galatians 5, take that a step further and think of the fruit produced by the Spirit of God in my life that is now being employed in His service. That seems to be the fruit that Jesus is speaking of. There is fruit that the Spirit of God is producing in my life. He's using the Word of God. He's using prayer. He's using the fellowship of the saints. He's using all of these different means to produce this fruit. But as I employ it in the service of God, as I use those things that He has gifted me with to serve others, then God is glorified in my life. J.C. Ryle says this so much better than I just did, so I'm going to quote him. He says concerning the word fruit, He that would know what the word fruit means does not need to wait long for an answer. The word fruit here pictures repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of life and conduct. These are what the New Testament calls fruit. These are the distinguishing marks of the man who is a living branch of the true vine. Where these things are wanting, it is vain to talk of possessing dormant grace and spiritual life. Where there is no fruit, there is no life. This is, an, this is a fact of nature. He who lacks these things is dead while he lives, end quote. So the third principle, fruit bearing, is the evidence of abiding or remaining in Christ. And then fourth, the fourth principle is the vine dresser or the husbandman, who is God himself, the Father, the vine dresser knows best how to get the most fruit out of his branches. The vine dresser knows best how to get the most fruit out of his true branches. 
We're going to talk about the activity or the work of the vine dresser here in just a moment. But the fifth and final principle to govern our study here, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Apart from Christ, Jesus says, we can do nothing And we might add these words to understand we can do nothing of spiritual significance outside of Christ. Ministry that is done in our own strength is vain. It may bring us glory but it does not glorify our Father. Ministry done in our own strength, according to our own wisdom, according to our own skill, using natural and common grace-type gifts, is all vanity. If you and I are to glorify the Lord, we must remain or abide in Christ. No, now that we have those five principles out of the way, we can actually talk about these eight verses. Let's first look at what Jesus says in verse 1. I am the true vine. The word true here is not an addition. I realize it's not found in the fifth verse. Jesus simply says there, I am the vine. He's reiterating this point that without me, you can do nothing. But he begins this discussion, which is submerged or right in the middle of the upper room discourse. Just just before chapter 18 is where Jesus is betrayed, where he is arrested in the garden. Right in the middle of this upper room discourse, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Vine, which has an implication, and the implication here is that there is a false vine, is that there is a vine that is not true. And if you remember reading in the Old Testament, very often the people of God in the Old Testament are referred to as the vine. Two places I'll point you to, one of them we're going to read, the other I'll just mention. The first is Psalm 80, and you can look in Psalm 80 and start reading in verse 8 and read through the end, and you'll read of this vine being, or Israel being compared to the vine of God. This is an image that runs throughout the Old Testament, by the way. But the one place I would have you look or at least listen as I read is Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Now listen to these words. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. 
What was his expectation? The imagery here is God bringing his people out of Egypt, placing them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He had put them, placed them in a very fruitful hill, had cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower, made a wine press. So what did he expect of this vine? He expected it to bring forth good grapes. Grapes worthy of being pressed and made into the finest Wine, but it brought forth wild grapes. Grapes that were not the choicest for the wine that the well-beloved was hoping to gain from this vineyard that he had provided so richly for. This is the false vine. And it had reached its full head in Jesus' day. Think of the Pharisees and all of the condemnation and woes that Jesus pronounced upon them. The Pharisees were the choicest of the fruit produced by the false vine. They were whitewashed tombs. Having everything put together on the outside, but inside, Jesus says, they were full of dead men's bones. The Pharisees represented the wild grapes of the vine. So Jesus is saying here, he is contrasting himself with all of the false religion of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all of these, all of the false religion and the way that true religion had deteriorated. Jesus is contrasting that and he says, I am, I, even me, I am the true Vine. And then he goes on to say, if you want to bear fruit that is lasting and honoring and glorifying to God, you're going to do it through being attached to me. Not this dead, false religion. The same holds true today. There is much dead and false religion. There are many who have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. That was the condemnation given by Jesus to one of the churches in the early chapters of Revelation. Jesus does not judge based on appearance. I think that's modeled and exampled for us by the anointing of David the shepherd king. It was his older brother who looked the part, who was tall and strong and handsome. And the prophet said, surely, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. And what did the Lord say to him? No, this is not him. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. He doesn't look at the externals. He sees what's in the heart. And here's the shepherd boy who looked. There wasn't a thing about David that looked like a king. He was young. He was comparatively weak compared to his older brothers. Had little experience. But God said, this is the king. The same holds true 
in passages such as we're considering this morning, John 15. It's not the outward, externally religious, but it is the one who by faith and trust and cultivated communion with Christ that the Lord looks upon when he says you can be a fruit bearer in my vineyard. So we understand what Jesus is saying here. I am the true vine as being compared to a false dead vine. But then there is also another very clear statement following that. My father is the vine dresser. So the image is easy for us to understand, right? Jesus is the vine. The father is the husbandman or the vine dresser. And it is his work to maintain the branches on the vine and their fruitfulness or lack of. So we've first seen the true vine. Secondly, let's consider the work of the vine dresser. And let me just say, before we get too involved in this, this would be a good place to just stop and thank God for his interest in making me and you fruit bearers for his own glory. I realize that we should be preeminently interested in this, but it is a great comfort and it is a great encouragement to know that the Father is more so interested in the amount of fruit that my life produces unto His glory. So what is the work of the vine dresser or the husbandman? It's, it's twofold. Verse 2 gives us the work. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's the first aspect of the vine dresser's work. The second, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more. Let's look at the first aspect of his work. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, this is why I went through the five principles in the beginning. One of those five principles reiterates the fact that those who are truly found in Christ will produce fruit. And let me just say it this way. You can't help but produce some measure of fruit. If you are truly united to Jesus by faith, if the sap of the vine, the Holy Spirit of God, is coursing through your veins, you will produce some measure of fruit. So what is this second verse speaking of? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You probably have a notation in your Bible, as I do, that refers to these last two words, takes away. And it says it could also mean to lift up, to prop up. But even then, we have to understand that interpretation correctly. It's not to prop up, to nurse, or to tend. It's to lift up and remove. Remove. 
I can say that because when you study this word, it's found everywhere in the New Testament. I'm going to give you two references. Everywhere that it's found, it's to lift up and remove. Matthew 16, 24 uses this word, original word in the Greek. We're familiar with these verses. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Same word as interpreted takes away here or to lift up. Let him lift up his cross and do what? Follow me. Carry it. So it's a word of removing, to lift, to carry away. Okay, so the second is Mark chapter 2. It's found in verse 9 and 11. Here you remember the paralytic whose friends brought him to Jesus, couldn't make entrance in the door, so they dug out a spot in the roof, lowered him down. Jesus said to him, Take up your bed and do what? The word take up is the same as takes away or lift up here. Take up your bed, and he first says, and walk. And then he second says, take up your bed and go home. Those are just proving the use of the word. It is to take up, to lift up, to take away. That's an important point to make when we consider the verse. I think verse 2 is referring to what we talked about earlier, those who are saying in profession only. I realize, dealing honestly with the verse, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, remove, or he takes away, he lifts up and carries away. I think that that is a reference to the visible church, those who are very close, yet not all the way united to Christ through faith. That's the first work of the vine dresser. He is removing the dead branch. The second work of the vine dresser is that he prunes the living branch. Every branch that bears fruit. Now notice, this is a fruit-producing branch. So why not just leave it alone? Well, the vine dresser wants more fruit from this branch. So what does he do? With great skill and wisdom, he prunes the branch so that the branch that made 10 pieces of fruit this year might make 20 the next. And he alone has the skill and the wisdom to know when and where the branch needs to be pruned. But you have experienced this in your life, I'm sure, to some degree or another. You're living a faithful and true life, abiding in Christ, and then something unexpected happens. It could be very grievous. It could be a great blessing. Oftentimes, I think we are not wrong in considering this the pruning of the vine dresser. Reiterating what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Why so? 
that they bear more fruit. This is the activity of the vine dresser in your life. And again, what a cause of thanksgiving that he has taken such an interest. Now in verse 3, Jesus, I think, is speaking directly to the 11 true disciples in front of him. We know Judas will shortly be dispatched on his work of betrayal. Jesus says in the third verse to them, you are already clean. Jesus is not meaning they've already had their bath for the evening or whatever it may be. Jesus is saying to them, you are already clean. The word could also be pure. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to even consider the word here to be pruned. You are already pruned because of the word which I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you. Now, remember the context of these words. Jesus is very soon going to be removed off the scene. That was the, the topic of last week, John 14, right? I'm going away. Thomas says, Lord, where are you going and how can we know the way? Jesus very soon will be removed off of the scene. They will no longer be able to sit with him and converse like they are now. So Jesus is teaching them the importance of remaining not with him, but in him. Now, shortly he's going to tell them the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's good, better for you that I leave, that the Spirit comes. But for now, Jesus is reminding them, abide in me, or he's instructing them, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot. Notice the word. And again, these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. The branch cannot. That is a, a word of ability. The branch cannot. Cannot is completely unable. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. The branch, spiritually or in nature, must be connected to the trunk or the vine because it is the vine that carries the nutrients. It is the vine that carries the sap. Whatever word you want to use, the branch is completely dependent upon what is supplied it by the vine. The same, obviously true, spiritually speaking. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. And then verse 5, clarity. You have to love the clarity. I am the vine, you are the branches. Let there be no confusion. Let there be no disorder. Let there be no question as to whom the vine is. Jesus is the vine. There is no other. Just as it is true for Him to say, I am the way, truth, and life, He says here, I am the vine. There is no other vine that a Christian can attach himself or herself to that will benefit like this vine, the one and only. And then again, Jesus says, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me. I think the sixth verse is further commentary on the second verse. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That brings me to my third point, the relationship of asking and abiding. Let me read the verse again, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, please know Jesus is not saying here, nor does the Bible teach in any other place, that an unsanctified, unholy desire will be granted at all. Notice the precursor to verse 7. The precursor is those who are abiding in me and my word abiding in them. It is those who will ask whatever they will and it will be given or done for them those who abide in Christ have their wills and desires informed and shaped to those of Christ himself that is the reason that is the foundation and the only reason that can be given that they may ask what they will because it accords with their new desires and it accords to the very Son of God Himself. This verse nor any other in the Scripture is licensed to go and ask for worldly things to be used on worldly enjoyment to satisfy a worldly lust. But it gives us every ground to have our hearts, our wills shaped and formed after the person, the work, and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then out of that renewed heart and mind and nature to ask for those things which accord to Him. That's why the promise is so great, so straightforward, and so simply worded. If you abide in me and my words and you ask, you will ask what you desire. But guess what? Your desires are going to be his desires because he gave them to you. It shall be done for you. It's the same in the Psalms. He will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because your desires have been fashioned and formed and molded after His own. That's why prayer is such an important and vital part of our Christian life. Prayer is not wrestling with God, trying to get Him to see things from our perspective. It's just the opposite. It's a wrestling with God so that He can show us His perspective. And then when we ask what we will, we get it because it accords with His will. And I'm belaboring this point probably because it's such a point of abuse. It's such a a point that takes a young Christian and distorts real, vital Christianity. This is not license 
to ask whatever you will to spend it on your own lusts. This is instruction. Abide in me, my words in you, ask what you desire, and it will be done. So that's the relation of abiding and asking. The last that we're looking at here as we're running out of time, the relation of the Son, the Father, and the disciple. Don't miss this part. This, this, is, this is the greatest, most tremendous part of this paragraph. Verse 8. I want you to notice the Son, the Father, and the disciple or the believer are all represented in verse 8. So there is a relationship that takes place between father, son, and believer or disciple. What is that relationship? It's a reciprocal relationship, first of all. But Jesus says, but by this, my father is glorified. That you, father, son, and believer, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. What is this relationship as you peel back the layer? The Son is supplying everything needful and necessary for the Father to be glorified. The Father receives all the glory. The disciple is now able to fulfill his chief end by glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. It all tends toward the glory of God. Why is the Father so keenly interested in how much fruit we bear as Christians? Because it has a direct relation to how much glory He receives for everything that He has done for us. That's why there is such a keen interest. And if we do not remain attached to the vine, nothing can be done toward the glory of God. So in conclusion, two simple questions. Are you united to the true vine? Are you united to the true vine? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the saving of your soul. He is the true vine. There is no salvation apart from Him. Second question, are you bearing fruit unto the glory of God? And I realize not only this passage, but others teach us that there are varying degrees of fruit borne by people with varying degrees of giftings of God that's in His hand. But every Christian should be bearing some measurable fruit. Salvation from beginning to end from its being authored to its being finished, is for the glory of God. Let me say this and I'll be done. God saves a person. God saves a person to receive glory from that person. We, we reap tremendous benefit. 
we live under the smile and favor of God. His hand of, of blessing is upon us. All of those are reciprocal benefits. But ultimately, when you boil everything down, God saves to receive glory. I think that can be proven over and over throughout the Scriptures. And Jesus very plainly says He receives glory when your life is bearing fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for their simplicity. Lord, help where the water has been muddied by my words. Pray the Spirit of God would come and lead and guide us into all truth. Lord, help us to remain in Christ, to abide in Him, to receive from Him every good and necessary thing for this Christian life, everything that pertains to life and godliness we have been given. Father, we pray that You would receive the utmost glory for the salvation that You have wrought in our lives. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.